0: Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as WaxOn. Welcome to the Once A DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life, for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others, and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast, I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now, whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mixing when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Uh, oh that was nice. Welcome back to Once a DJ. I'm here today with Alan Smithson, DJ innovator, entrepreneur and founder of tech slash futurist company Metaverse. We're gonna look at how he built a career DJing and had some of the coolest gigs on the planet, and then how tech, business and DJing have all benefited each other along the way so thanks for coming on today alan
1: thanks so much adam i'm very excited um you know life after djing is uh is interesting you know my whole life was tied up in djing and even when i got into technology it was dj technology and so when i uh, abruptly ended that and moved on to a different world I, i mean little things that you don't think of like I have to go buy a suit because <laughs> I'm dealing yeah. with business people. <laughs> I didn't even own a suit. So that was a, a challenge.
0: <laughs> yeah. So how did you get into DJing in the first place then? And we can have a look at that sort of timeline. Yeah. I mean, it goes way back to high school. I
1: um, I used to have a, a cassette player with two cassettes uh, and I used to record the radio show overnight and then I would record it to one cassette and then I would Dub it over to the next one and try to get rid of, you know, try to get it as close as possible to, um, to seamless and try to make a mixtape for people. And, you know, it would take me, oh my God, it would take me hours and hours and hours of trying to go tape to tape to trying to make it seamless. And I'd get rid of all the ads and rid of the spam and the talking and then make a mix. And then I would, you know, once you have one, you can just duplicate it, right? So I'd make a bunch of copies, and I literally hand drew on it like Star Productions, you know, and I put the, I make a little case for it, and I would hand draw all of these things on on a Maxell, you know, cassette tape, and so that was like back in high school, and then I started DJing like lunch hours at high school, and then uh, when I went to university, I was a I was a drummer in high school, and then when I went to university, um, I, I was kind of like, oh well, I'll just keep DJing, and I went into uh, the bar, the local on-campus uh, bar called The Keg. And I i got a job as a bouncer. And I did that for like, oh my God, not even 30 days. It was brutal. I was <laughs> definitely not the right person to be a bouncer. But one night, I was very fortuitous. The DJ didn't show up one night, just didn't show up. And they had all the music there and all the DJ stuff. And they're like, does anybody know how to use this stuff? So I jumped right in. I, I mean, I didn't really know how to use it. I just guessed. And I made an impression, I played some really great music and threw a party and they offered me the job every Friday and I started doing uh, ladies' 80s night at university. And then I was good at that and drew a crowd and then on the Thursday, they gave me the Thursday night, which is the pub night with the crazy, like crazy night. I mean, we had, mm. I think our capacity was 400 and we'd put like, I don't know, thousand people in the place. It was crazy. <laughs> it was nuts. Like the things we did back then, I don't think we could do today. But, um, but I ended up DJing Thursday, Friday, and then there was an on-campus club as well called The Bullring, and uh, I went to the University of Guelph, and so I, I DJed at the KEG on Thursday and Fridays, and then I ended up moving in with uh, two other DJs in a house, there was, there was four of us in the house, but two, three DJs and one other guy. And the one DJ um, who owned the house, he was, it was like really good at hyping people up and playing the right songs and getting, you know, getting the crowd going. But man, he couldn't mix two songs together to save his life. Like he just did the crossfade. Like it didn't matter. Yeah. One was a house music and one was hip hop. He just slid it over and didn't care. The other DJ, uh, Rob, he was like a technical phenom. He could mix any two songs together, make it sound seamless and perfect. Uh, beat mix. He taught me how to beat mix. Um, so I kind of got this hype man. You know, being able to pick the right songs at the right time and, and talk on the mic. And I got the you know the skills of. Being able to meticulously mix two songs together, um, in any genres, and so I ended up DJing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, um, in university, and I continued doing that until you know, until I graduated. Yeah. They asked me to DJ like their weddings and their you know school parties and their corporate events, and ended up uh, doing that. And I was uh, I got a real job for a couple you know like two years. I, I was a pharmaceutical rep, but on weekends I was just DJing as well. And then one day I just realized I was like, holy shit, I. Um, I'm making more money on weekends, having more fun. Let's just do that. And so we turned it into a full-time thing and um, we did that for almost 20 years. And we DJed, I, I personally DJed over 2,000 events over the course wow. of those 20 years. Yeah, it was a, it was a lot. <laughs> so what and, sort of music were you doing? Well, I guess back in, you know, in university it was like, for, Thursday night was pub night. So it could be anything from house music to hip hop to rock music, it didn't matter. It was a wide range of things. Friday night was 80s night, and then I did a I did a whole bunch of 80s like ska nights and 80s nights and retro oh, nights nice. and stuff like that. Um, I even did a funk night, which was pretty cool. I did a ska night. Um, I even did a big band event where it was like a big band party, so I had to go and f- figure out what that was all about. And I went, and, you know, it was back in the days of CDs, so I went to the <laughs> indie shop and bought a whole bunch of big band CDs and did that. And then uh, the club was like, at the time, it was right around the time where house music was kind of fading out and hip-hop was coming in so I kind of started off with house and then it you know the, the you go with kind of the demand of what the people want so we moved over to hip-hop um, primarily at the club and that's that lasted for like a decade and then you know um, house music came back in like kind of 2008 9 10 11 somewhere around there and in 2010 we um we actually invented some technology for the music industry you know people may have seen it if you're a dj you may have seen the emulator the big see-through glass touchscreen dj controller um it was a giant midi controller and we invented that uh brought it to market and it was right at the kind of the peak of the edm explosion so we went to edc you know new york edc las vegas we went to UltraFest. we went to winter music conference we traveled all over the world at all the different dj conferences promoting the DJ board, the emulator, and I, you know, I got to DJ at all these clubs. So I, I kind of made a list in 20, 2009, I made a list of all the places in the world I wanted to play, like Ministry of Sound and Ibiza and you know, all these places. Yeah. And in 2010, I had this big checklist and I DJed exactly zero of them, <laughs> like not even one. It was so depressing, I got to the end of the year and I was like, oh my God, I, what have I done with my life? But in 2011, I ended up checking them all off the box. I played Ministry of Sound. I played, the you know, the box in Ministry. I played um, I played uh, Dre's After Hours in Vegas. I played uh, a couple other places in Vegas. I played in Miami. I played a space. It, it just, I checked off all the list, right? Yeah. And uh, I got to, I spent a summer in Ibiza in 2011 as well. So I got to meet a lot of people. And
0: So was this it, all it, through the, um, through Emulator then? It was, yeah. So I went
1: from kind of doing like, corporate events and weddings and like you know just anything that would come along really we had a dj business we had at one point we had i think 15 djs working for us doing you know different events around the world around uh, mostly toronto but then across canada and then we started doing global stuff um and then we introduced the emulator and that kind of opened up a whole new world for us it was incredible
0: that was, for anyone that's not seen it, it's a wild, wild sort of um, departure Emulator from everything DJ. that was, yeah, if you could Google Emulated DJ, it's a big departure from what had been before. Um, what did it take to bring something like that to market?
1: Oh, man, it took uh, everything I had. Uh, when, I, when I say everything, I mean like we took, we borrowed money against our house. We, you know, it took everything. When we just were all in on it. And we thought this would be the future of DJing. And, um, you know, it was pretty awesome, to be honest. I mean, a yeah. giant 46-inch see-through screen that the audience could see what you're doing. And as a performer, you could actually prepare your, your decks however you want. You could have a two-deck set, set up, a four-deck setup. You could connect it to, you know, um, Tractor, Ableton, Pro Tools if you wanted to. And you could perform live on a touchscreen that is of your own making. We actually worked with Linkin Park, uh, Infected Mushroom, Morgan Page... Um, we sold a bunch in Vegas, sold a bunch in the UK, we ended up selling 500 of the units around the world um, to big DJs around the world in, in clubs and stuff. Uh, it was used at the Emmys, it was used by Flo Rida, uh, it was used um, at ADE a- 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 Amsterdam Dance Event, uh, a couple years. I actually presented, I DJed at the, the Dove Party at ADE, a- a- uh, <laughs> I keep wanting to say A-W-E, which is the Augmented World Expo, which is the business I'm in now. Right. And before it was, you know, it was ADE, Amsterdam Dance Event. So yeah, I ended up playing in a place called Air, which was this crazy club in, in Amsterdam in the basement. And Amsterdam's like above, or like right at sea level. So they had to, you know, in order to go into this deep basement, they had to pump things out. So. When you went to the bathroom and you flushed the toilet, it was like a toilet in an airplane where it was, you know, sucked it out. And they called the club air because of that. Oh, my God. Man, the sound system in that place was louder than I've ever seen. They had a 36-inch subwoofer. So normal subs are about 18-inch, and they usually double them up or whatever. Um, They had a 36-inch sub right underneath the DJ booth, and they only used it for one night, and it made people sick. (laughs) It (laughs) It was not meant for music. It was actually meant to test helicopters. So they had this big, huge... I mean, 36 inches, 3 feet. It's a massive yeah. subwoofer. And it pounded so hard in such low frequencies that it made people throw up. So they
0: had to scrap it. Oh, my God. <laughs> seemed like a good idea on paper. So, I mean, yeah, you've DJed some incredible places. Is there one place that's the absolute favorite that you'd kind of go back to in a heartbeat or that you've just got the fondest memory I of? I mean,
1: guys, uh, Ibiza, there's nothing in the world like it. Um You know, Miami during winter music conference is great because, you know, every DJ in the world is kind of there. Uh, EDC, I never got to play EDC. Um, I I got to play kind of backstage and show demos and stuff, but I never got to play a stage. But if you ever got a chance to play EDC, it is, it's like Disneyland for adults. Um, It's really, really magical. Um, There's 300,000 people that go. It starts at 7 p.m. and then it's in the NASCAR Speedway in Vegas and that goes all night. Um, another one that I never got to go to was Tomorrowland, but Ibiza was, for me, was the, the ultimate highlight. I, I got to play at Eden, uh, at a uh, club called Eden. It's not there anymore. But it was like a, you know, it was a super club, it was 5,000 people. I also played at Government in Toronto. Uh, Government was voted best club in the world a couple of times, it was, it was special. It's not there anymore, it's now condos. <laughs> um, yeah. Ministry of Sound was, was interesting. It um, wasn't my favorite gig the The box is super loud. Uh, if anybody's ever been in the box, it's like really fucking loud. Like when you're standing there looking at the DJ, the two walls beside you, the entire walls top to bottom are speakers, front to back, top to bottom. Like it's so loud. Um, and what happened was, uh, because we're on a glass touchscreen with a projector, it was shaking the shit out of the screen. <laughs> so you couldn't, it was impossible to DJ. It was like, boop Every time the bass hit, I couldn't see the screen. So I was just kind of guessing on a, a lot of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, because the screens must be really sensitive as well with the movement.
1: Yeah, well, the movement didn't cause any touches or anything. You just blurred it, right? Like imagine the vibrations right. of a screen and there was no isolation between that. And, and actually the interesting thing about the booth in the box is it's made it of poured concrete. So the booth is like two feet thick across, and like the whole booth is separated from the club by a big concrete barrier, and your decks are on this giant poured concrete system. And the sound system for the booth ha- is probably the equivalent of most ni- like club sound systems. It's got five speakers above you, and then subwoofers all underneath this concrete thing. It's just, the sound system in the booth
0: is louder than most clubs. <laughs> It's wild. So what was next then in terms of emulator? What what do you think sure. it was um, that stopped that becoming kind of um, like a high street kind of yeah. mainstay of I, DJ I mean, tech? a
1: couple of things. I think one, um, DJs love physical knobs and faders. I mean, we love tweaking stuff. And, and a touchscreen is a totally different interface. It's a different thing. And we were really early, like we launched that thing in 2010 and to put it in perspective, We launched a 46-inch see-through touchscreen before the iPad came out. Yeah. So, like, you know, we were really early. Um, We were, I would say, um, inexperienced would be a a good way of doing it. I mean, we knew about the DJing world, but we didn't know about distribution and, you know, manufacturing. We had to make the software, the hardware, and distribute it around the world. Imagine we shipped 500 units around the world. Uh, of a giant glass touchscreen and none of them broke. Um, We brought it up uh, bringing on an investor um, who unbeknownst to us only had one motivation to kind of steal the company and take the company hostage. And so he ended up doing that and we lost the company and everything. Um,
0: So that happened and
1: yeah, that that sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't recommend that. So
0: what was next after that then?
1: Yeah. So I guess in 2014, in June, I got invited to perform on the emulator at a thing called curiosity camp, um, which is a camp in the middle of the woods in California. Uh, it's in a boy scout camp. You got to drive for like an hour into this camp and there's no Wi-Fi, no cell service kind of thing. And the, the interesting thing about it was, um, it was, uh, you know, it was a tech conference, like an unconference. So you go there, there's no there's no technology, but you're with a bunch of tech people. So there's entrepreneurs and investors and researchers and just really smart people building tech uh, platforms. And I performed, did my thing, you know, people, you know, I got people to draw on it. It was super cool, right? Because, you know, everybody wants to touch the big giant see-through touchscreen. So what we did was we built a drawing app into it so that, you know, when girls came by and wanted to write on it, they could let them draw on it and they draw little hearts and, you know, put their name or whatever. Um, So I let people draw on it. And then after that, my buddy's like, listen, you got to come and see this thing. It's crazy. And we went into a little tiny tent in the middle of this forest. And they were doing a demo of uh, this new thing called virtual reality. And it was an Oculus DK one, which is a giant box that you stuck on your head. It was like, it was like literally taking a a book and sticking it on your face. (laughs) And it had big headphones. And I remember sitting there and he put me into it. And then all of a sudden it turned on and I was like, whoa oh my God, I was, I was standing in a concert and Beck, you know, the guitarist Beck, he was standing on stage playing and I was in like this giant, you know, venue, round venue, but I was up in the crowd and I was like, holy crap. And then I remember the moment where somebody pushed my shoulder and turned me around so I could actually see behind me and around me. And it was that moment in VR where you're like, whoa, I can look everywhere. And then they pushed a button and put me on stage standing next to Beck. Like right next to next to him. And I'm like, Becca's standing there, I'm looking out into the crowd, and I had this kind of aha moment where I was like, This is gonna be the future of human communications. Mm-hmm. You know, we had radio and well, we had telegrams and then we had radio and then we had television, then we had the internet, and then we had phones and VR just seemed like the natural progression to me. And so, um, very shortly after that, like that was in June and it's September, um, I got fired from my own company and uh, decided to to build a a company in in VR. And um, the first thing we ever shot was the Groove Cruise, uh, which is a giant floating festival. If anybody gets to play the Groove Cruise, that is like, I'd say that's better than every other festival because you're on a cruise ship for three days or four days with the artists, like, you know, you're standing in line at breakfast in the morning and, you know, data life is standing there next to you and you're just like, hey, what's up? You know, there's no <laughs> egos. There's no, hey, there's no fandom. It's just like, oh, wow, it was a great set last night. You're like, Pass me the bacon. <laughs> so awesome. it's a super cool thing. We got to film it all in VR. Um, and then uh, we, we called the company Shock Creative at that point. And then a year later, we changed the company name to Metaverse. Uh, M-E-T-A-V-R-S-E.com. And uh, we changed the name to Metaverse and we just kept building VR and AR solutions for businesses um and that was kind of our that was the path over to it i, I saw vr in a, in a small tent in the middle of nowhere had this kind of epiphany got fired started a company and here we are seven years later we just celebrated seven years at metaverse um, amazing the whole world last year uh, once meta changed their name kind of adopted the metaverse as the future of the internet so it was kind of like calling your company kleenex now everybody you know says pass me the Kleenex," <laughs> but don't say pass me the soft tissue so
0: yeah so at this point then, something that would be interesting to look at is you wrote a book in 2015, 2016 called DJ Profits. It was written before then, actually. Um, yeah, it was written, yeah, maybe 2012,
1: maybe 2013, somewhere around there. 20,
0: right. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. And and that's really good. I mean, I just finished it and I think just Thank there's you. so many good points in it about the business end of being a DJ. Yeah. Um, It's like people don't talk about it. It's like, you
1: know, if you talk about the business, you're not a real artist kind of thing. And it's like, wait a second, wait a
0: second. (laughs) It's like, it's like there's an assumption that you're just a capitalist, but even a a DJ's got to eat. Yeah, Um, you
1: got to make money. And and look, the really, you know, uh, the super high-end people get it. Like Deadmau5, for example, the guy spends enormous amounts of money researching, building Developing his new stage shows, right? Like those stage shows mm-hmm. don't come cheap. You you think a giant LED cube just came out of nowhere? That probably cost him a million bucks to build that whole show. Yeah. And then you know, you of course you got to tour it to make your money back. So a lot of DJs just see it as a, a paycheck and not really investing in their brand and not investing in the show itself. You know, mm-hmm. even people like um, Kygo, for example, Kygo huge, and my my other buddy made all the visuals for him. And, you know, Kygo, you know, kind of hit it off, but I remember seeing him at Coachella and the visuals were incredible, but they didn't come cheap. You know, like people need to invest in their brand, they need to invest in themselves. And, you know, as a starting DJ where you're just like trying to get gigs for free, even, you know, you're just trying to get out and perform, uh, it can be hard to kind of think of that bigger picture and and build a business plan around your, your brand, your personal brand.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from onceadj.bigcartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out sureshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How to Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides, and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. Well, something that stuck out for me in the book, I was saying to someone yesterday about it, is when you talk about when you're doing corporate gigs, making sure that your gear looks clean, your equipment looks like a professional setup. I've never thought of that. I took a supermarket shopping bag out with records the other day, (laughs) and I just thought, yeah, that doesn't really... I mean, no one could see it, but you just think... It doesn't really give a massive... everything,
1: especially in the corporate yeah. world. I mean, look, you know, when you're, when you're at a house party and you got all your cables hanging off the front, nobody gives a shit, right? People are just there to party. But when they're corporate, I mean, the difference between you getting paid, you know, $500 and $5,000, it could be something as simple as just making sure that you're neat and tidy and you show up, you look the part, you're not, you know, you're not showing up late. You know, I was up against DJs that, they were great DJs but they showed up late. They didn't listen to the client. They were messy. They showed up in, you know, in, in, you know, running shoes at a business meeting, like little things like that, where you kind of had to just think outside the box. It was like dress for the way you want to be, you know, paid really. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I took a lot of pride. We actually made a, a custom before the emulator. Um, we made a custom DJ booth. It was sick. We, we had a, um, it was two 1200 turntables and a mixer all embedded in the in the surface of the table. So we made it all custom, and it had a curved front to it. That curved front was super hard to make, but it was like we'd roll it in on wheels, and then you know all the, everything was in it. You just rolled it in, and you know everything was hidden. All the cables, everything was underneath. Plugged it into the wall, you know, ran your speaker cables to whatever sound system you're running, and you voila, you had a beautiful setup that was. Brandable. So on the front, we had this light, uh, this kind of light-up thing that you could put any of the company brands. The one thing I learned about doing corporate events is that people love to see their own brand. I don't know why; it just is a thing. So even when we had the emulator, we used to put, if we'd go and do a corporate gig, we'd put the company's logo into the, the mm-hmm. image picker, right? And in the middle of the gig, you could swap the image out and just put their logo up there. And I don't know; they just love to see it. So you know, we once you figure out that and. The other thing that really stuck with me, and, and I think this is an old guy giving me some advice, he goes, "Look, you're not there to DJ for you. Like, you want to DJ in your basement? Go right ahead. You're a DJ for you're there to DJ for the people paying you. So whatever they want, you do it. You make them happy, and it doesn't matter if their music selection sucks. It's not your party. Who cares? Now, obviously, you kind of have to use some sense of uh, of reasonableness because some people will request dumb shit, as you can imagine." <laughs> So,
0: yeah. Uh, and something else that really kind of stuck out for me is, and, and even how you were talking about doing the pause tapes when you were at school, mm-hmm. it's user experience. So you're you're going to distribute these tapes and you want it to be the best possible listening experience for your end user. You're trying to make them perfect. You're not like, well, they can live with an advert. You're like, no, I want this to be the best no, thing man. for them to yeah, consume. Man. It was, even
1: he... to the point, it was to the point, Adam, where if the beat wasn't perfectly synced up, I would redo it again, the whole cassette, because like, I couldn't handle that. I couldn't have music mm. that was offbeat. It was driving me crazy. So yeah, like when, when I go to a club now, and if I hear a, like a DJ who's playing great music but can't mix, man, it's so frustrating for me. I, I sit there, and I'm just like, oh, I, I don't even want to be there. I want to leave. And I, I'll never forget, I, was, I went to see Avicii once um, in Vegas. And, man, the concert was incredible, incredible. Like, energy, the crowd, everything was just going. And the DJ who came on after, there was no break or anything. It's not like they said, hey, goodbye, and then, you know, it was just like the DJ came on. And I'll never forget the first song he played. He must have been his own song. He Maybe he wanted to promote it or something. But the song was made out of key. Like, the bass (laughs) was out of key of of the synths. The synths were out of key of the vocals. It was awful. And I remember standing there going, oh, my God, I feel uncomfortable. Like, ugh. And just be, the song being so out of key, and it was a long song, it was like seven minutes, it cleared the dance floor, people, the energy in the room just dropped, and people left. Because it wasn't that you know, Avicii's over, we're gonna leave, there was still a party going, raging party, but the music was so out of key that it was uncomfortable for be, people to be there. And you know, I learned that lesson in, in the really importance of key, and actually, after that day, I used mixed in key for everything, because you know if, I don't even know if it's built into the stuff now, but mixed in key, you used to put your tracks in, it would tell you the keys, and then you could mix mm. based on, on key uh, and BPMs, of course, obviously. Um, I mean, that yeah, that it, sounds like a... Is more important than BPMs, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that gig that you just described, that sounds like a really, really poor judgment call on either the promoter or the DJ to not be mindful of the... I mean, Avicii's massive, right? I I don't know a lot about EDM, but I know of Avicii. Mm -hmm. And to follow up with someone that's gonna be that irresponsible is pretty crazy.
1: Probably, honestly, what it seemed like is like, okay, he's the local DJ or maybe the opener or whatever, you know, he's the local Mm -hmm. guy. And it seemed like he wanted to play his own song or something like it just, but maybe nobody taught him to make music that was in key. I don't know. It was terrible. I'll never forget that moment. That was the moment I was like, key is important.
0: (laughs) Well, this comes into another thing I really liked in the book where you, you, another place that UX comes in, I think is where you're talking about the ways to create relationships with record labels. Mm -hmm. You're talking about making like the most frictionless way for them to click and listen to your music things like the file naming convention so that it's easily retrievable, they can know who did it as quickly as possible and things like that. Um, well, th- you got to think back then, I mean, people were still playing on CDs. Um, yeah.
1: Some people had moved over to Serato and stuff, but it was mainly CDs. And then, you know, we kind of pivoted from CDs in Serato and in tr- Tractor to the, the ability to have all your music on a USB stick. It was right around that time. Um, and I remember, you know, DJs were still giving out like, CDs. And I was like, guys, you know, what am I going to do with a CD? You know, it was starting to get to the point where computers didn't even have CD players anymore. And you know, Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, everybody's moved on to USB sticks. Use that. And actually I I made, I'll show you one second. Hold on. I'm going to grab something. I made this um, mixtape. Anyway, what I did was, you know those business card USB sticks? Yeah. So what I did was, this one's not it, but one of the USB sticks like this and I had a, it made look, a, it like, looked like a cassette and it was a mixed tape, whatever, you know, on the back. Mm. And then, you know, I could write on the back of it, but then I could just hand these out. I could keep them in my wallet or in my pocket little. And, and what I'm holding is a, almost like a business card with a USB stick that folds out of it. Yeah. And we use that for promo for like years. And we used to make like one long mix and then we put our tracks on there and being able to get your music into the hands of promoters and get them to play it and listen to it. Is is hard. I mean, there's millions of people vying for the labels' uh, attention and time. And I just read something yesterday from uh, I can't remember the guy's name. He works for uh, works with Deadmau. Um. Anyway, they um, they're talking about how kind of community is more important now than labels. You know, most DJs are not trying to get a label. They're trying to build a community. And I think we've, you know, you have to keep with the times. If you said you were going to build a community back in 2011, 2012, 2013, that wasn't like, no, you just went for the label and the label built, did your marketing and did all that stuff, right? So as an indie DJ, it was very hard for you to break in. But now, you know, with NFTs, being able to kind of directly connect with your, with your fans and build communities, I think that's the future of this. And now, that, I don't know how many record labels there are on Beatport, but there's got to be thousands of them now. Um, and, you know, and... It's not like when you used to sell a CD, you got paid a you know a buck or whatever it was. A stream makes point zero 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 one cents or something per stream. Um, you know, even the top top streamers in the world are not making that much money on on Spotify. Mm-hmm. So, you kind of have to be there, and your music is almost it's almost free to give away so that you can get a paid gig. Yeah. So we're in a different era than I you know, than I was in before.
0: Yeah, c- communities and, and influences are a massive thing. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who, who he's MD for a fairly big social media agency and we were talking about the concept of good enough because we're not listen- we're not sitting in a studio right now. You're sitting at your end on your laptop, on the microphone. I'm at my end on certainly not a massively professional microphone. I'm in my dining room surrounded by washing that's drying and some that I've still got to hang up and we're doing this thing. And, and we, it doesn't have to be us two sat in a studio anymore. Um, I, I call the concept kind of good enough. Um, yeah. Uh, I lo-fi. Think, you know,
1: perfection is the enemy of, uh, of done. And mm-hmm. when you're, you know, uh, this is a problem with all artists and, and myself included, you know, you write something or you build a track or you, whatever, it's never finished. It'll never will be. Um, but you have to ship it and especially I make software now. So like eventually you got to ship it. And it with its b- warts and with its bugs and with its weirdness. Right. So as an artist, your music will never be perfect and that's okay. Um, and that, that has to be okay. Otherwise you'll never ship anything and you'll never put out any music. You'll just be caught in this, you know, self-loathing hatred of, you know, I don't like <laughs> um, and, and to be honest, good enough is good enough. Get it out, ship it. Yeah. Um, and there's a software term, if you're not embarrassed by the first iteration of your uh, product, you release
0: too late. Mm, it's that's, that's really interesting. I mean, what, what I was just going to mention about the guy with the social is he's convinced certain clients of theirs to drop the investment in production and to increase the investment in um, like influencer partnerships Marketing. because that's really where the value is now. Because and, and the production
1: is are... getting cheaper like we have tools now that we yeah. can do joint production like there there are um, you know tools where you and I can make a song together from anywhere in the world real time and we can work on that song together we can master it online there's mastering tools there's mm. you know online tools now shit I don't even have to make songs I can just use AI so you know the <sighs> tools get easier and easier um, and more more effective so the tools to create music, and, or the barrier to entry to create good music is lower now, way lower. I, I can go and chat, chat GPT, get it to write me a pop song, give it get me to write the chords. I can go over to another program and I can have it, you know, play out the chords for me, put the song over. I can put it in any style I want and I can literally have an AI create a, a novel song to the world um, and, and have it done. in probably I could probably do it in a day if I, and that's like, when I say a day, I mean a day from not knowing any of the platforms and researching everything to a published track in 24 hours. I'm sure of it. Um, actually, maybe that, maybe we'll do that on the weekend. Um, but you, you know, the barrier to entry is not in the creation anymore. It's in the marketing and community and, and you know, getting found. Getting found is harder than building the track or making a song.
0: So this is something that I think you'd be a, a really good person to ask, because um, I've been talking to someone quite a bit about AI recently, who's using it a lot for software development type of tasks he he, um works in kind of technical sales for a software company and and he's been able to use it for loads of database scripts and things like that so we've been discussing it quite a bit and something I'm interested in is with AI it's kind of how it can do this sort of creativity there's not much it can't do so do you think that soft skills are going to be ever more increasingly important or do you think AI are going to get those I mean I saw something the other day saying that um for, I think it was for the NHS or for some sort of medical questioning, there was medical professionals answering questions versus AI, and even the empathy levels were voted higher in the AI. Way
1: better in the AI, yeah. Because it, you know, it, it, yeah. Um, so my, this is a hard question to, to answer or even address, to be honest. Um, as of November 30th, 2022, last year, Um, the world changed and I I believe you know as much as we have pre-COVID and you know hey oh that happened before COVID or after COVID COVID was a massive influence in the globe you know for about a year year and a half let's say AI will dwarf that a thousand times over so I believe you know October or November 30th 2022 was the pivot point in humanity where we were pre-AI and post-AI when ChatGPT came out it changed the game and you know it, it's only six months old and it's just really good at everything so I don't know where we fit in this and and this is the one of the b- main challenges that we're gonna face as humanity is what do we do when really good mid ping you know like that middle-class job of accounting or lawyers or doctors you know everybody says oh robots uh, robots will take our jobs and you know we won't be in any manufacturing and there won't be any this like well AI doesn't go for those jobs. It go for it goes for high-paying executive jobs. And we're already seeing a mass layoff with technology companies because they realize the potential of AI is astronomical. And if you can do the same amount of work with 500 people than you would have with 1,000 people, economics dictate that you do it with 500 people. And so we're in a real interesting world where capitalism has served us quite well over the last you know, 100 years or 200 years or whatever it is. Um, but we've kind of reached a point where capitalism is, is only um, being used really to, to make more profits. And if capitalism, eh, the only measure of successful capitalism or successful businesses is profit, and you have a tool that increases your profit dramatically, um, but it makes all your employees gone, Uh, and then puts everybody out of work, where do we draw the line? And is there a line to be drawn? And I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know that anybody does. Um, Now, there will be a net gain of jobs over the next two decades, but what those jobs are, we don't know yet. Um, I mean, if you look back, even if you look back five years, let's say three years, Metaverse Creator was not a job three years ago. You look back 10 years, app creator, well, I'll call it 12 years, app creator wasn't a job, app developer wasn't a job, you know, AI, um, prompt engineer six months ago wasn't a job. So, and we didn't even think about it, like these are, these are jobs that are now full time positions that were never a thing previous and we didn't even contemplate it until it happened. So what are the jobs of the future? I don't know. We don't know yet. Okay. I don't know if I answered your question or skirted it. I'm sorry.
0: No, 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 that's fine. It's not an easy question to answer. <laughs> it's
1: not, and I study this stuff a lot, so um, I don't know the answer to a lot of it. I, and, you know, the world is seeking answers to these questions. What do we do in an age of AI? I, and the answer is we don't know yet. And, you know, we don't have government regulations even regulating it yet, so it's going to be an issue.
0: Okay, so for me as a DJ, how do I need to consider AI how can I leverage it, or how should I be concerned it's gonna come and take my job?
1: Well, one, I think there's really cool creation tools coming out, so where I would use it immediately is like, okay, maybe I don't wanna use it to make the whole song, but maybe I I wanna have AI develop a new chord progression that's never been used, or or something that, maybe a new beat, or a new rhythm, or something that has never been used, right? So I think AI in the song, in the music creation side is gonna be a big thing. But then also in the promotion marketing side, you can literally go into ChatGPT, type in "Write me a, uh, you know, a business plan for uh, a DJ and XYZ," and put in your, you know, what you want it to do, and it'll create your business plan. It'll create you a marketing strategy. It'll do all of that. Now it'll be very generic. You got to fill in the blanks. Then you can also go over to like Mid Journey or Stable Diffusion or one of these kind of uh, text to graphics, and you can make graphics for your album art, for your, you know, for your website, for your YouTube, uh, you know, snippet. You can use Stable Diffusion to make a whole music video. Um, You know, you can now leverage these tools to create uh, a much bigger persona than you, with one person, than you could with a whole team before. So Mm -hmm. like I, as a one individual, can make a website using AI. I can create graphics using AI. I can create, you know, let's say some some music. I I wouldn't use it to create your music because it's not that good but it will get better. But I can use it to maybe inspire some of my music and, and get me to the point where, you know, cause sometimes you sit in front of the keyboard and you're just like, I don't know, man. You start playing random shit and you're just like, this doesn't work. So AI kind of spawning your, your ideas. Mm. I'm using it to create uh, visual art. A lot of, I've been using uh, Mid Journey to create some really cool visual arts. Um, my next phase is like, how do I take the still images and make them visual, like make them move and stuff. So mm. working on that now, um, I think you can use it to create social media plans. Uh, There's AI now that can connect all your social... Like there's a program called Buffer. It's not really AI, but Buffer will allow you to put your posts in series. And let's say on Saturday, you kind of sit there and make... all your Sunday, let's say, sit there with your coffee, put all your posts together. And Buffer will send them out to Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and everything automatically for you over the schedule of the week. Um, You can start to use these tools to make yourself look way bigger. Like you have a team of 10 people, but really you're just mm. using AI, why not, right? I think the the promotion side is definitely already there.
0: That's interesting because back in the mid to late 2000s was when I was most actively chasing the dream, let's say. Mm-hmm. And you know, I learned to develop, learned to code so that I could develop a website. I learned very, very basic uh, Adobe Illustrator, very basic Photoshop was doing all my old social media. I remember being on MySpace and just spending days just connecting to people and yep. spamming them and things like that, rightly or wrongly. Come to my
1: party, come to my party on Friday night. Here's the link, come to my party. The yeah,
0: individual I, messages to everybody. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've checked my mix yet. It's really good. Yeah, check my um, mix. Please play my mix. <laughs> and it was <laughs> That's always... another thing. People don't have time to listen to your whole mix. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. and And it was that thing that I thought was a real difficult quandary was... How much time do you spend creating and how much time do you spend doing everything else? And I guess from what you're saying, you can be really streamlined with the everything else now.
1: Yep. And that's, that's actually the, the, the one thing that can this technology can just lift you, uh, lift you up because, you know, artists are supposed to be using most of their time either creating the, the music or the art and then either performing it, right? All If you look at any successful artist, they don't do their booking. They don't do their, their mm-hmm. billings. They don't do any of that stuff. They're never sitting there with the promoter asking them for money. And that's all dealt with somebody else deals with it. They show up. They perform. They you know they do what they do best. Um, and, and no serious like top thousand artists in the world um, really does any of that stuff on their own anymore. They have a whole team. Mm-hmm. But as an up-and-comer, you don't have that luxury. you got to just rented out and everybody has to do that from the beginning like there's no way around it I don't think unless you're super rich and you can hire people Um, and then you know you can be Paris Hilton so Um, yeah
0: Yeah. uh, I think that's that's a hard one. There was just one more thing in the book that I really liked reading. Well, there was a load more stuff in the book I liked reading. In particular, like kind of the rules of a DJ girlfriend, for example. <laughs> that um, was written
1: by my wife, by the way. <laughs> it,
0: yeah, it's super interesting stuff, and just things I would have never thought about before. I don't even remember um, what was in that, but yeah, it's
1: uh, my wife wrote that because uh, she had to put up with me travelling a lot.
0: Yeah, I think I've discussed this with a few guests. That there's there's a lot of behind every good behind most good djs is a very supportive patient partner
1: yeah Um, who's at home taking care of you know like in my case julie was running our business she was our coo so she was back at home building the you know emulator units and shipping them and dealing with the you know logistics and Mm. sales and all these things and i was just out there promoting the hell out of it and so i you know i had that and i had a, a small team of people working on that um, but yeah, you, you know, you really, if you're going to date somebody as a DJ, there has to be a, an insane amount of trust because you're yeah. literally gone for weeks on end. Um, you know, at some points <laughs> during the kind of heydays of it all, I mean, I was sleeping four hours a night, like maximum. It was crazy. I remember I slept eight hours in seven days once and I, we added it up and I was like, holy shit, I don't think we've slept this week at all. And mm-hmm. you know, it was you're constantly on planes and trains and flying around. You don't know where you are half the time. So, you know, having a supportive partner that can, you know, be there for you is uh, is is yeah, invaluable. And I,
0: and I think it's not just it's not just a question of fidelity. It's a question of okay, I'm kind of here in the wilderness doing everything myself. Uh, you know, is this gonna pay off for me in the end? I think. And and I you think know. that's
1: another thing you have to realize is who cares if it pays off in the end like nobody i know is doing the same job they did when they started university very few mm. people and it, you know as a, it maybe some dj's like carl cox have been doing it his whole life right um, but is like my whole thing was if i'm not enjoying it in the moment now i must be doing something wrong and so i always stru- you know was striving to enjoy every moment of it because you know it, are you going to get rich being a dj I don't know maybe maybe not but it would really suck if you didn't get rich and hated it at the same time like yeah. what's the point you may as well go get a banker job or something um so I think always having fun when you're doing it and, and if it ceases to be fun do something else and that that for me I actually lost when I lost the company I really lost my passion for DJing like like to the point where I didn't I didn't DJ for three years at all I didn't even look at it um, I just completely went the opposite direction, and that was more of a personal thing. It was, it was hard
0: for me to even think about DJing after losing my company. Um, you know, I, it was a personal. Is that because of association of the experience, rather rather than thinking negative things about DJing? It's more this reminds me it was. of, and,
1: and also it was a couple of things. I've been doing it for twenty years. Like I retired after twenty years, and I lost the. I used to get butterflies every time I'd go on stage right before I'd get yeah. all nervous and like, oh my God, you know, and I'd go on stage and I, you know, and once you kind of play a few songs, you, the nervousness goes away, but it got to the point where it was just like a job and I didn't really get butterflies didn't care. I was just doing it. I was just doing it on, on autopilot, right? I, you know, I can DJ with my eyes closed on my elbows. So by that point, I just didn't care anymore. And when you're not, when you don't care about it, it shows, right? The, the audience picks up on that. They're, you're not. You're not fully into it. And, uh, and that's when I decided I just got to stop this because I'm just not... I'm not into it. And it's not good for me and it's not good for the audience. And really, the only reason I'm there is to entertain them. So if I'm not doing a good job at it, then it's time to stop.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying Once A DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with sure Shot Shop. To create some 1 to DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from 1 to DJ.bigCartel.com. And if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customize, check out ShowShotShop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton TurboStar, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what you're waiting for, visit howtomakemusic.co. Yeah. So in terms of Metaverse, how have you found that experience and the growth of that business?
1: Oh my God, it's been a wild ride. So... We've been doing it seven years, well, eight years, seven years as Metaverse, and we have built over 190 projects in the space. So we've done AR apps, VR apps, we've done training, marketing, sales, retail, we're building the world's largest virtual mall, we've done, uh, we built a VR photo booth for Samsung, we built an AR sandbox, we've done countless projects in the space, and, well, I guess we could count them, 190. Um, but it's been, it's been great. Honestly, uh, it's a whole new world. And when we started in XR or virtual augmented mixed reality, there was only like maybe a thousand people in the entire industry. It was no industry, it was just a bunch of nerds getting together talking about, hey, these glasses look at this thing. And, you know, I just got in with all the nerds. And, and now all of those people that were, you know, I went, I remember going to actually this conference, the Silicon Valley VR meetup. I'm wearing mm. this shirt today. Uh, Silicon Valley VR meetup, when I first went there, was 500 people. And now it became, you know, uh, actually that conference is gone and, and the new one popped up called AWE and it's thousands of people show up to it, right? So, you know, I've been in this industry since the grassroots where, you know, we were just a bunch of people sitting in a room talking about, you know, VR and geeking out and, hey, look at my thing, look at this. And now it's grown into a global phenomenon where there's millions of headsets in the world and, you know, billions of dollars being made already. Um, so I've watched from from a front row seat of an industry growing from zero to, to billions Um, And it's been super exciting. And I mean, it's not without its challenges, for sure not. Um, But I just really love what we're doing. And my ultimate goal is to build a new education system. So everything we're building is in service to that. So we built a whole web-based game engine on the web that is completely uh, drag and drop. It's low code. So anybody can now build a metaverse world or a virtual experience, whether it's in training or if it's in retail, it doesn't matter. Um, We built it so that it's all super easy to do. And in doing that, I think we can unleash education that, you know, with AI and some other technologies as well. But I think we can really unleash education on a global level like never before. Amazing. Very exciting.
0: So the other thing I just wanted to ask about in relation to your book is there's a really good point made about self-awareness. So you talk about how people can put loads of effort into seamlessly getting their, um, their songs are record labels, and if you've tried five, then try another five, and then if you've tried that ten in total, maybe your music's just not good enough. Do you think that sort of self-awareness is something that will that that is or will be present in AI? Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Huh.
1: That's the billion-trillion-dollar question: Will AI become sentient? Will it have uh, emotions? Will it, you know? And I, I mean. Is it critical, I guess? Is it critical to AI? No, I think AI is is a tool that like any other. It's, you know, we have calculators. Um, now we have phones that do pretty much everything, but it's just another tool that we have to, to create. So, sorry,
0: I'm, I mean, is AI will AI think critically about its output? Oh, it
1: already does. Oh, if you go into ChatGPT
0: and you say, give me whatever, uh, write me an article on this,
1: and then you say, no, no, this article is not good for these three reasons, change it. And it'll like, or you can even ask it, critique your own article that you just wrote. Right. So yes, it, it can critique itself. When it has a, an emotions and feelings, that's when, like, you know, we, we're like, hey, you know, uh, Siri do this or Alexa do that or whatever. I'm trying to be quiet so it doesn't set it off. But, you know, I think we should say please and thank you to the robots um, because who knows when they start to feel.
0: I do. I'm quite polite to Siri just in case. Just
1: in case, right? Like... <laughs> You know, you, you watch this um, w- w- when they had the robots, right, the the walking robots, the Boston mm. robotics, and they're hitting it with a hockey stick and knocking it over. I'm like, you sure you want to do that? That thing has a memory. <laughs> it's going to remember you knocking it over. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I like to think my approach is risk averse. Yeah, exactly. That's probably the way I put it. So
1: one thing that I, I've noticed that, you know, uh, we talk about AI kind of going off the rails and stuff like this, where, you know, people are able to prompt it to to say, you know, racist or horrible things. But it won't do that without the input of a human prompting the crap out of it and forcing it to go down those rabbit holes. So I almost feel like we need more responsibility or regulation around the people prompting it and less around mm-hmm. the AI. Because, look, if I can make it say racist shit, who's to blame, the AI or me, for making it do that? And I think the user has to have some responsibility on what the output is. Because if you prompt it to do things that, you know, let's say, for example, I used it. Um, uh, Maybe you can use it to prompt, hey, make me some code that does X. But what if I use it to make code that is uh, nefarious? Maybe I make code that that crashes a a major government website. Is the AI responsible or am I responsible? The AI just made the code. I used it, right? I prompted it. So I think we we have to find some balance there, and I don't know what that is. It's probably some government regulation or something.
0: Yeah, that makes me think about Staffordshire Bull Terriers, in England, there's quite a culture around them about them being quite an aggressive dog. Mm-hmm. But I've known of some absolutely lovely Staffordshire Bull Terriers, and it's it's the characteristics that nature people versus nurture. them, isn't it? Yep.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you if you have a dog, any dog, and you beat it and you make it angry, any dog. I have a cocker spaniel; he's the most passive thing ever. But if I were to raise him aggressive, I can raise him aggressive. I can make him angry. I can make him growl mm. at people. I can make him bite people. Like. That is a that is a training thing, and if you train your AI to be horrible and racist and you know bad to humanity, then you should be held responsible, not the AI and not the platform. And mm-hmm. I guess I guess it comes back to the platforms do have some responsibility to protect us from ourselves. So, for example, Facebook and and YouTube, there's laws, especially in the US. I don't know what they are in Europe, but the laws in the US. Um, Basically, hold the platforms completely non-responsible for any of the content that's published because they're not the publisher of the content; they're just the platform in which it's published on. Hmm. So, if I, you know, want to publish horrible things, you know, beheading or something, it's up to the, the platforms to remove it, but they're not responsible for it. Yeah. And I don't know what regulations we need around AI because AI, you know, is that kind of next level. So
0: I don't. know. I'm sure we'll have some horrible things go on that make us realize we need some sort of regulation, be it around people or AI. I hope we get to the regulations
1: before the horrible stuff. And I mean, look, prime example is NFT market. Um, You know, it started off as ICOs and, you know, initial coin offerings back in 2016, 17. A bunch of people got super rich and ripped people off and a bunch of people lost all their money. And then it happened again with NFTs last year so this is what happens when you have unfettered capitalism with no regulations people get hurt and you know when i say people get hurt like people lose their life savings and it's going to happen with ai i I read something yesterday or not yesterday last week where uh, a guy was able to create an a voice avatar i guess and trick his bank into letting him in using the voice prompt using ai wow yeah right like Okay, he did it to his own account, but it shows you the vulnerability of some of the things. We, you know, Banks have voice uh, recognition to recognize and let you into your bank account. Well, that technology has to be canceled because with yeah. one minute of training data, the AI yeah, can do it now.
0: I've got about one hour's worth of your voice right? recorded now. My,
1: oh, man, I have hundreds of hours of my content on the internet. People
0: could easily take yeah.
1: my voice. No problem. you only need one minute of voice.
0: Yeah. So just a couple more things then. Um, So in terms of you mentioned cryptocurrency and NFTs, crypto's kind of been up and down over time. Um, Do you think that's going to kind of continue to boom or do you think it's stabilized or what would you anticipate for someone like me who's a layman?
1: Yeah, have you ever seen the Gardner hype cycle?
0: No. No.
1: So the Gardner hype cycle is a, a is a cycle of technology and every technology goes through it. And what happens is you have this kind of increasing curve and it goes into like giant a giant wave, right? You have the curve going up where it's like new technologies. So for example, quantum computing would be on there. It's not quite ready. It's it's in the you know it's in the ether and it's like, okay, you have quantum computing and maybe you have a you know advanced AI and some robotics, some like really esoteric stuff that's just you know just being invented. So that's on the initial curve. Then it goes up and gets a bunch of investment. Right now, you know, we saw this with NFTs. We saw a bunch of investment, millions billions of dollars going in, going in, going in. And it reaches the peak of expectations. And then people realize, well, there's not, you know, it's a bunch of hype, right? So the bottom falls out and it crashes down. And then it crashes into what's called the trough of disillusionment. Meaning, you know, NFTs, people are like, is, you know, your prime example, are NFTs going to be a thing? Is crypto going to be a thing? It's in the bottom of this thing where like, it was such a big hyped up thing and now it's kind of crap and people are questioning it. It's the trough of disillusionment. And then what you have is what's called the slope of enlightenment, meaning you're coming out of this trough and there's actually real things like Starbucks introduced an NFT wallet where they're giving real value through the loyalty program. We're doing a loyalty program with Starburst right now in the in the Juicyverse. If you go to starburst.com, you can check it out. Mm. Um, we call it the Juicyverse. So building real value using this technology. So Yes, there's a hype wave and then it goes crashing down and then there's real value. And what happens is you come out of the slope of enlightenment and it becomes what's called the plateau of productivity. And what that means is now you have, uh, it never will match that original peak. It'll come, you know, come, come out of it, but at least it's real value being created. So I think, yes, there's a massive value for NFTs and blockchain and crypto to, to serve humanity in amazing and, and fun ways. Um, but I think the hype wave Really jaded a lot of people, um, mm. and, and bankrupted a lot of people. NFTs lost ninety-five percent of their value last year. Yeah. So you know, uh, that's that's not good. Uh, and this happens with gonna... unregulated
0: technologies every time. Do you think there's going to be good opportunities for DJs to leverage NFT technology? I think there already are. I think you
1: know the the stuff that Pixel Links is doing, which Pixel Links is a um, uh, partnership with um, Dead Mouse and some other people. Uh, Inder Full is, is running that. Um, they're starting to do community building using, using NFTs and allowing artists to sell their their art or their music or directly to people instead of having going to go through labels and, and and you know having ownership of a, a song, let's say, that also gets you uh, into a concert. Like you know mm-hmm. you, you flash your your NFT, and they scan your QR code, and they're like, oh, you're a member of our fan loyalty program. I think there's huge opportunities there to to bypass the traditional marketing efforts and go directly to your community. That was the whole promise of NFTs. It just unfortunately got hijacked by a bunch of douchebags that wanted to make a lot of money without doing a lot of work. Um, so <laughs> that, that happens with technology sometimes. It's like I went, to put it in perspective, I went to NFT New York and it was all about the art and community and everything. And then I went to Consensus, which was all about the money. And so you have these factions, same technologies as blockchain, but two distinct factions. One's, you know, artsy and and community driven. One is just, how do I squeeze money out of these people? Mm. Um, And they are conflicting. And so until we kind of work that out and we come out of that, you know, plateau of productivity, um, you know, we'll we'll be, be challenged.
0: But I think there's definitely opportunities for artists to use this technology for sure. Awesome. Are there any tips for DJs that you think we've not covered in our discussion today? One thing that is, it's not
1: really just for DJs, but in general, um, I think a practice of gratitude is important to be a healthy human being, and unfortunately, we just don't, I don't know why we don't teach this at school in a kind of like a formalized way, but one thing that I I do every day is I I practice gratitude out loud, you know, I walk down the street and I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful for the trees in bloom, you know, I'm grateful that it's not cold outside, I'm grateful that my dog is, is here, and you know, I just constantly am practicing gratitude, and for me, it's just inherent in my, my daily practice. You know, I do meditations and stuff, but I think for somebody starting out, it's best to write down three things you're grateful for every morning. And if you do that at the start of your day, it's really hard to be in a bad mood. It's really hard to kind of, you know, Mm. be angry when you're, when you're grateful, it's hard to be sad when you're grateful. It's hard to be upset when you're grateful. And so practicing a daily gratitude. Um, and then of course, if you're into it, I mean, I don't, I don't recommend it to anybody because people are not into it and you have to kind of find your own way, but meditation is a great way to kind of clear your mind and also open yourself up for new experiences that can contribute to your art creation. Um, even if you're just playing music for people, you know, you just silencing your brain, getting into your own headspace, maybe setting some intentional goals. Um, this whole mindfulness movement that's happening right now, I think is a direct result from overstimulation of you know social media, the the doom scrolling that we do all day, you know, like, yeah. you know, sitting there at two in the morning, you're just like scrolling, 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 <laughs> scrolling, scrolling. Um, the mindfulness and the gratitude and the, the meditation really helps kind of set you for the day. And I, I think those are things that I, I wish I'd known back in the day. It would have given me that time to reset myself and find yourself a quiet corner, put on, you know, put on uh, binomial beats or something and just kind of just, just get away from the noise for a minute and, and turn off your phone for a minute and just take a couple deep breaths, reset yourself. And that few minutes by yourself and then in the gratitude practice, those things will create a life of, uh, of really um, a lot more peace in what you're doing, it will help.
0: That's interesting what you raised there about our class it as kind of having healthy boundaries with technology. Talking about doom scrolling, particularly, I think most of the time that I've heard people talk about that is people that do work in tech. I think they're just very aware yeah. that this is great stuff, but too much of a good thing can be quite bad. I actually had to delete TikTok off my phone. Um, mm. And I'm not an a, addi- well,
1: I guess I'm a slightly addictive person, but um, I had TikTok for seven days on my phone. And you know how he gives you the report of how long you used it? Mm. my report said i used it 24 hours in seven days one full day of my week was used on tiktok so that was it i was like delete delete (laughs) the app i'm out
0: yeah i've tried posting on it but i've not scrolled it one second because if i do the
1: problem with the scrolling is their algorithms are so good it will just if you like something if you even if you hover on it for an extra second it's like oh you must like that here's more of that content and, you know, for me, it was girls' watches and cars, Cars, you know, like, <laughs> literally, it was so predictable. <laughs> girl, watch, car, girl, watch, car. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've heard people discuss that it kind of, the TikTok algorithm can tell you who you are to the point that you don't really want to know who you are. There was
1: just a, a thing released yesterday where uh, the TikTok employees were able to see anybody who was accessing LGBTQ um, content. So yeah you know they i don't know why they were accessing it, but they could tell uh, that you're doing that, so I mean even if you don't know you're gay you're you know the algorithm right. does right imagine i mean the algorithm knowing that you're gay before you do what could well that wrong? that's
0: that's kind of like there's a book by Charles Dewey where he talks about um i think it was walmart they they were kind of seeing the patterns in pregnancy purchases and sending pregnancy related marketing information to households where it might be someone's daughter that's pregnant and they were getting complaints it's like there's no one here that's pregnant it's like hang yes, on yes there second. is <laughs> <laughs> yeah terrifying why am i um, sick in the morning <laughs> yeah because because yeah. it wasn't it wasn't the obvious stuff it was it was more subtle things like vitamins and things like that yeah, yeah. yeah. it's absolutely fascinating um thanks ever so much for your time today alan oh, that's been pleasure. that's been great is there anything else that you'd like to mention that we've not covered um
1: i just want to tell everybody that uh you know whatever it is you're doing whether you're you're DJing, playing you know mixtapes or playing parties or building your own you know brand or or doing that just remember that you know you have full control over your art and believe in yourself you know nobody's gonna believe in you like you believe in yourself so you know make make your goals big and audacious like you know i want to go play the ministry of sound or, or i want to play in ibiza whatever your goals are write them down on a piece of paper uh, put them in a drawer review them every month and go get them because they're your goals and you can attain them now one piece of advice that somebody gave me that, that stuck with me you can do anything you want you just can't do everything so make your list maybe you're going to cross some things out that's okay too you know he, even though you maybe have hundred things on your list, and, and maybe you know ten of them happen this year, maybe they'll happen next year. Don't be t- time bound as well. That's another thing that's really important. Don't get caught up in oh, I didn't achieve this or I didn't. Just do it. You know, it's okay. You have a long life. You know, we're you're probably going to live to 100 years old. Enjoy every minute of it.
0: Beautiful. Thanks so much for that, Alan. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Once A DJ Podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care, and we'll speak to you soon. that was nice.